Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly. This is episode 77, recorded on Monday, July 22nd, a rare Monday episode for us. Uh, this is the Photo Geekery Show. We dig into the uh, the geekiest news of the week, usually new technology announcements, and we opine on what we think they might end up with in terms of functionality to us as photographers or in society at large. We talk about some law stuff now and again, uh, now and, again and we've got some of that in this episode. It is going to be an action-packed episode, uh, one of my favorites based on the, the story rundown, which we'll get to in a little bit, but uh, also one of my favorites because of the guy sitting in the co-host chair, uh, Mr. Steve Brazel. Steve, you are the uh, the MVP of this program. Uh, everybody asks for you to come back on time and time again. Uh, the feedback is always wonderful when you're here, so I'm glad that you're here to discuss these stories with me. How are you doing? And for everything that you just said, the PayPal payment is on its way. <laughs> Thank you. I'll be looking for that. Uh, but uh, in all seriousness, Steve, uh, I mean, you you make more uh, notes than anybody else on the stories that we talk about. You dive into the details and you find some stuff that I miss and uh, me vice versa for you. So it's always a good back and forth. And we've got some great stories to talk about today. But before we get there, uh, what have you been up to? It's been a while since we chatted. All the normal stuff, just working a lot. It's concert season here in Southern California, so I'm shooting a lot of concerts. Had one this Saturday, hopefully have another one next Saturday, and doing the uh, the podcast as usual, and just having fun. So your podcast is BehindTheShot.tv, and uh, I've been on there a couple of times in the past. You've been it's on three a- times. You, you're tied for the record with Rick Salmon. <laughs> awesome. And Rick's a great guy, too. And I have uh, I just recently was on his podcast, too. It's always nice oh, when were we you can on- kind of oh, cross-pollinate. Yeah, right. You were on Picturing Success. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so we had some fun. And uh, uh, But uh, your podcast, BehindTheShot.tv, um, uh, who have you had on recently that uh, is of, uh, of interest to our listeners? At the time we're recording this, I've actually got one of the first times that, a, that when I found out how an image was made, I, my jaw hit the floor. And it's a guy by the name of David Dewhurst, who's very, very famous for in the 70s and 80s as a motocross photographer. He shot all the legends of motocross back in its heyday. Not that it's not big now, but I mean, I'm talking in the heyday when I followed motocross. And now he is a photographer, not only for motorcycle companies, but Lexus and Toyota and Honda and Hyundai and all of these big car manufacturers. And it's a photograph he took of two Lexus RCF. I think they were 2015 at the time for Lexus International. And when I found out how he took the shot, unfortunately, I found out in an email before we recorded I kind of wish I had been this surprised on the show because it literally blew my mind, the creativity that he did the shot with. Really? Well, you're keeping us in suspense. We're going to have to go and check that out. Uh, When does that air? It's on right now. It it came out mid-July, and at the time we're recording this, which is a Monday, what, the 22nd, it came out the Thursday before this. So it's it's out there for a while. All right, go check it out. I'm going to check that out as soon as I'm done recording because I've got some uh, photos to edit from a recent trip that I had done out to the Seattle area and to Anchorage, Alaska, doing some workshops out there. And I've got some images to sit down and crunch through. I always listen to a uh, photo podcast or uh, sometimes an audio book, but usually I like to, to keep up with the podcasts. And yours is one that I have missed the last few episodes for, so I'm I'm excited. I can catch up. Time to catch up. And this is a really seriously, it's 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 just one of those that made me go, oh my gosh, I would have never thought to do that, and it was just that kind of a brilliant idea. Awesome, awesome. And you know, it's it's funny too because uh, I 
I was kind of outside of my element in some of these workshops. I was uh, working with uh, two fellow photographers that uh, are in sort of the macro space, but uh, entirely different approaches. Uh, they use lens babies and uh, multiple exposures right. and texture overlays and things like that. Um, Jackie Kramer was the uh, uh, the orchestrator of all of this. Uh, and I'm going to butcher her name, but Andrea Gulich uh, is uh, from the Netherlands, and she is uh, an... A, Astounding photographer, wonderful in her own right, and we all kind of complimented each other nicely. But, you know, when I see some of how they work, it's kind of like a couple of little light bulbs go off in my mind because I'd never tried it before. And and I see uh, sort of a, a little bit of inspiration sparking inside of myself for my own workflow and how I can adapt their techniques to do some of the stuff that uh, that I am uh, more passionate about. So it's, And it's actually, fun. when I recorded this episode, I thought of you because you, in doing the type of photography that you do... It's not even sometimes by choice, but to shoot the type of things that you do, you often have to come up with some, you know, out of the box, creative way to get that particular shot. The only difference here was it was the size of a car, but it was the <laughs> same type of mentality that Adon Komarechka has in how can I make this look real world with the limitations that I've got to yeah. get there. And and it was just, it was really yeah, we're just really smart. I love All right, you, you, you've baited us well. We've got a, you're, we, we've taken a bite. We're on the hook, and we will uh, we'll take a look at that, Steve. Thank you so much uh, for referencing that too, because uh, I know. I mean, like everybody, you might not be able to catch every episode of everything out there. There's a lot of photography podcasts, uh, more now than ever. I mean, you're listening to Photo Geek Weekly, which didn't exist two years ago. Uh, and uh, so make sure that that's one you take a look at. Now, uh, before we get into the um, uh, the topics, I just want to say, uh, just, this is a fun little weird feather in my cap. I, I am on the cover of Stereoscopy Magazine. Uh, for my 3D macro photography, if you have the latest issue of Stereoscopy, which is an international, very thin, very tiny publication on uh, 3D photography, I'm proud that that is my my latest cover shot. Congratulations. So, into those little niches I go, and I have fun. That's where I revel, uh, revel in my obscurity. And Now we uh, need to get Brian May to read that. You know what? He might, because uh, uh, Brian May is a huge. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, people don't uh, know the name. He is the lead guitarist of Queen, an astrophysicist by uh, education. He has a PhD in that field, and he is a stereoscopic 3D uh, enthusiast. And he owns the London Stereo uh, Stereoscopic Society, I believe with his wonderful OWL viewers, O-W-L. It's an acronym for something. I forget off the top of my head. Um, but he released, what was it, last year, uh, a, uh, a 3D uh, Queen documentary, uh, or at least some uh, uh, short feature within that. And I've been meaning to take a look at it. But there's just too many things to do, Steve. Um, so let's let's get into the stories for the, uh, for the week. It's actually a bit of a week and a half because I was traveling. But uh, in that week and a half, we've had a ton of news drop. And story number one, reported everywhere, but I pulled up a Petapixel article here, that Sony unveils the A7R4, the world's first 61 megapixel full-frame camera. Now, it kind of bugs me to say it's the world's first 61 megapixel full-frame camera because they could easily say it's the world's first... 17.5 megapixel full-frame camera because there's probably not another exactly right. 17.5 megapixel camera and so the marketing words in there kind of bother me a little bit but uh, we have the camera that I think a lot of people have been waiting for uh, when Canon announced the EOS R Sony was silent when Nikon came out with the uh, Z7 and the Z9 
Sony was silent. Panasonic with the S1, the S1R, and the soon-to-be S1H, and Sony has been silent. And we knew something was brewing. We knew yeah. that, uh, you know, behind the scenes, it's been a long time since the A7R three had been uh, put out to market, relatively speaking. I mean, Sony's product cycles are usually pretty fast. Uh, and here it is. We have the the new Beast flagship camera from Sony. So, uh, I mean, being new and, uh, and, and amazing with the latest and greatest technology, of course, uh, what about these new features really stand out for you? And what do you think really shouldn't matter if somebody's looking to upgrade? You know, it's funny because I'm, I'm a Canon shooter. And when, when some of the Sonys first came out, I kind of wanted to go with them, but I had some grip issues with them. And like you say, when the EOS R came out, you and I talked about it actually on Photo Geek Weekly. And there were just a lot of areas to me that were were left missing. And okay, that was their first one, and they're going to come out with a second one. Everybody could say that at some point or another. What I see in Sony is constantly learning from what they've done. So they'll release a camera that makes people go, ooh, ah, and then they'll be silent for a while. And when they come out with the next one, which arguably is actually a very fast clip for how fast they're innovating, they come out with things that they clearly learned from the previous one. So first of all, the 61 megapixels. I don't really need 61 megapixels. Yeah, storage is cheap, but that doesn't mean I want to throw it away. But, hey, it's there. And in answer to your question, the things that really stand out to me, there's probably three or four of them. 15 stops of DR. Yeah, that that was big. Uh, And if people don't understand what uh, dynamic range is, it's how much from the darkest blacks to the brightest whites the camera can capture in a single image. Uh, The more stops of dynamic range you have, the more you're able to capture. But it's not a linear scale. Uh, If you have 14 stops and then the next camera has 15 stops, a stop is a doubling or a cutting in half, depending on which way you go. It's like a seismic scale. Yeah, exactly. So uh, if you have 15 stops versus 14, uh, it can double the dynamic range. Uh, I mean, on paper in laboratory tests. And it's well, yet and to be also, proven, let's but. be clear, this is in raw. I mean, you're not going to get that shooting JPEG. But if you're shooting in, in their DNG mode, 15 stops of dynamic range means that to your eye, based on the JPEG that's been rendered for your raw image, you may see clipped highlights or you may see clipped blacks, but you will be able to recover those in post. When you take that and combine it with 61 megapixels, that's amazing. Not to mention, this camera now has sensor shift multi-shot, which you have on your Panasonic, but this one is 16 61 megapixel images. That it combines together into a 240 megapixel high resolution mode shot. Now, what's interesting about that, Steve, is because the previous Sony uh, Alpha cameras, I'm not sure if they all have, but they had a um, not a higher resolution in terms of more megapixels mode, but their pixel shift technology had the ability to uh, increase the detail by uh, by shifting the sensor so that if I remember correctly, it was uh, akin to what Sigma has done with their Foveon sensors, where it would shift every pixel so that every photo site on the sensor, instead of being red, green, or blue, is red, green, and blue. Uh, now, we don't have the details on this, but I do know that on my uh, Lumix S1R, it'll take eight photographs to quadruple the resolution. Uh, but now Sony is doing 16, which I'm hazarding to bet 
that they are doing both technologies at the same time. So they are doing the increase in resolution for quadrupling the resolution. But for each of those pixels, the only thing that I could imagine why you'd have to double up the number of shots that you're taking is because you want to have the previous high detail quality with the high resolution ability, uh, which would require many more shots taken. Well, and they have clearly said this is a new, it's a BSI CMOS sensor. They've clearly said it's a new sensor, so they're definitely doing something. Backside new. illuminated for those uh, playing the acronym exactly. game at home. The other things that jump out at me, one of them we'll get to, I'm sure, when we talk about video, but I'll just say it now because you asked the question, what really jumps out? Real-time IAF and video. That's not going to be a small thing for a lot of video people. Right. Well, the, and, the, the, and I think that it's important to, to state that that becomes something of a rolling target. And now, no matter how good it is uh, when the camera is released, if you have some artificial intelligence algorithm, some deep learning trained software, um, regardless of what processing power you have within one generation of a product, if you... If you train that differently or better or more efficiently over time and release a new firmware update, that's the kind of stuff that just gets better when you update the camera exactly. just par for the course, okay? That, so, that's not a hardware thing that requires something. It, that is software. There is a hardware thing. The, the one main hardware thing that jumped out at me is what I said at the beginning. Part of the reason I would have never gone to Sony in the earlier versions is the grip, so at the concert I was at on Saturday, there, a number of people were shooting Sony, and I uh, once again thought, you know, okay, I'm going to try it. So I grabbed one and held it. The way a Sony mount works to its grip, the grip is very close to the mount. The lens protrudes about an inch and then flanges out to get wider before then going forward again. That corner where it flanges out is so close to the grip that it hits my knuckles and is extremely uncomfortable. This grip based on everything I've seen in pictures and in reviews and comments, like DP Review had a hands-on, the grip is much farther away from the lens. You know, when, when Sony has been listening, just you, like, like you mentioned at the beginning, uh, they've been listening at every product generation. They haven't made any great changes to their grip, I think, in the previous few generations of their products, and I'm glad that we can see that now. Um, and it's just an onward and upward in terms of some of the other technology involved. We have a, um, a 5.76 million dot electronic viewfinder, which... If you've ever looked through a very high-resolution EVF, like I have on the Lumix S1R, it just is enjoyable. I mean, it, it, it's really at that point where the electronic viewfinders are superseding my joy of an optical viewfinder in almost every way. Um, so with that in mind, uh, Sony, I think they've got a good product here that if you have the A7R three. I don't know if you'd necessarily need to jump in and buy, buy version 4, especially because the resolution increase, like you said, who needs 61 megapixels? Uh, yeah, sure, you've got them. And you can shoot them at 10 frames per second, so that's, that's wonderful. But uh, it's not actually a huge jump up from the uh, 40 to 50 megapixel cameras in terms of how much usability that extra resolution is actually going to provide you. So um, it's... Uh, I, well, it's, and, it's, it's and been a long you time said, coming. you said 10 frames a second. It's 10 frames a second for 68 full 61 megapixel images. <laughs> yeah, it's That's got a huge a buffer. buffer in there. I mean, my gosh, man, that is a heck of a buffer. But the one thing that intrigued me on this one was, let's say you don't want 61 megapixels. They have an APS-C mode that's 26 megapixels. And if you're in APS-C mode, your phase detection uh, autofocus points 
which normally would cover about three quarters of the center of the frame, they cover almost the entire frame for autofocus in the APS-C mode. That's and it's three hundred twenty-five points at that point. That's fascinating to me because a lot of people that will be what they'll use it for. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, things that I think might. Uh not necessarily be missing, but could have been a misstep or could have been improved on, on a camera like this because we always see something amazing and you say, well, why doesn't it have this or that? Um, again, on that resolution and the APS-C mode, I would like to see, and maybe this is something that can be software-defined later, um, the full sensor at a lower resolution. So, you know, Canon has their right. uh, their MRAW format and things like that. If somebody is shooting and they don't want 60-something megapixels and you want to just uh, interpolate that down to be 30 megapixels, which is more than enough, I believe, for most people, uh, then I'd like to have that as, uh, as a function or a feature. But even further, it's got dual SD card slots, which struck me as a bit of a surprise because of the amount of data throughput that you are pushing through this camera uh, at that rate. I mean, SD cards are fast and they're constantly getting faster. And these are UHS-2, by the way. Uh, yeah, but I, Sony is also one of the prominent uh, manufacturers of XQD cards. In fact, they, they don't have an exclusivity on That's it. That's a but, good point. Uh, but if somebody's going to buy an XQD card, there's a very good chance they're going to buy a Sony product. So why not put one of those in their camera, especially forward-facing? You've got the CF Express format, which is pin-compatible to the XQD cards, and we'll just use the uh, the NVMe, uh, non-volatile memory express bus, that uh, computer hard drives or SSDs have been using for a while now in order to ratchet up that speed about four times faster than even what the XQD cards could do right now. So you wouldn't have to introduce new hardware, just firmware, once those CF Express cards are out if the camera had a slot for one. Don't you see this? My interpretation when I first saw the specs of this, and I mean, the day it came out, it was screenshot after screenshot on Twitter. But as soon as I saw this, so much of this body radiated to me that, you know, arguably, this is really what they see as a pro version of their mirrorless camera. Because let's let's talk about this. First of all, it's weather sealed, Right. That's not well, they a small say enhanced deal. dust and moisture resistance. Now, uh, how does that compare to other manufacturers? Well, we won't know until the wonderful well, people but, at but Lens Rentals take it apart. they clearly state it's better weather sealing than the old version, right? They've got USB-C connectivity, Wi-Fi at 2.4 or 5 gigahertz. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got the better grip on it. They have now real-time AF, like I said in the video, IAF, but they also have animal IAF. That was introduced for, in the A9, I believe, and now it's cascading yeah, which is, down. And it's the, the same feature, by the way, as the A9. It's literally copied from the A9. But then, when you get into the video world, full frame 4K, real time IAF in, in video, and this was really interesting to me. They have a brand new, what they call multi interface, only available for the 7R4, goes on the hot shoe. And it keeps from the microphone all the way to the camera, the audio is entirely digital. That's really cool. They haven't had anything like that before. So now, to me, they're really kicking into gear on what I would see as arguably a pro Sony A7R. And that, uh, you know, you look at what uh, Panasonic is doing with their Lumix cameras, with the GH5, GH5S, and the S1 that are all very high-quality video-oriented cameras. Uh, and... Uh, Panasonic has had their uh, their microphone adapter uh, where you can plug in XLR mics and all sorts of other yeah, stuff. Yeah, which they have for this one too. They have for this one as well. Um, but it 
I, I mean, if Panasonic had paid attention to what the market wanted, and now Sony is looking to see how the success of other manufacturers have been in the past and said, yep, you know, we can do that too. And I'm happy that they are because that just, I mean, it, help, it helps us as end consumers to have more than one option and then competition drives innovation forward and forward. So um, let me ask you a question though, because I'm curious about this. What do you think? Well, first of all, I mentioned the XLR kit. That alone is six hundred dollars. Yeah, Again, that's... you don't put an XLR kit out for a, for a mirrorless camera unless you consider it pro. But what do you think of the thirty five hundred dollar retail price when it comes out in September? I I think that they have priced that unbelievably competitively for what See, you my get. Thoughts exactly. Uh, so I mean, I expected a camera with these levels of uh, of specifications to have at least a thousand dollars more in the price tag. Um, and so, I mean, Sony has been known for this, especially when they were just getting into the uh, interchangeable lens market, even before they went mirrorless. Uh, they were pricing their cameras uh, cheaper than the competition and probably taking a hit on profits as a result, but just in order to gain market share. And it worked for them then. And now that the competition is really heating up in this space, I think that it might be helpful for them as well. Um, would I buy this camera, though? You know, if I was already in the Sony system, if I had an A7 II or even an A7 III or an A7S or nine or whatever it is that you currently have as a camera, um, would you think that at that price point, for the features offered, that this is an upgrade path for the majority of photographers? Yes, I do. I think... I think for what people are using cameras for, this this actually offers a lot. And the other area that I see as an upgrade path for this are those people that are using, you know, a lower level Canon, for example, like, you know, the T-Series, where you're dealing with uh, APS-C sensors. They're looking to upgrade to full frame. They probably don't have a whole bunch of high-end lenses, so it's not replacing a whole kit in that sense. And they may even have some EFS lenses, which are only going to work on that crop body. And if they upgrade to something like this, they're effectively starting over anyway. I think the price point is really, really good. I think there'll be some video people that want it. It's got a shotgun mic available. It's, uh, I, it's got five-axis IBIS, which I think it had before. But this thing kind of has everything. The yeah. question is going to be what you said. They say better weather sealing. The question is, is it really good weather sealing? And uh, when Roger of uh, Lens Rentals takes one apart, and I know he will, uh, I'm, I'm going to be all over that and enjoy every snark and, uh, and, and just interesting kind of hidden jokes in his, uh, in his teardown. If you haven't uh, read any of those Lens Rentals teardowns, they're fun. They are very enjoyable, uh, well-written pieces. You know, one thing that's always bothered me about uh, the, the Sony A7 series, anything that uses the E-mount with a full-frame sensor, really, is if you look at a photo of the camera without a lens mounted to it, the sensor is the, the kind of clipping on the corners. Like, it is such a small mount right. compared to the uh, the size of the sensor. It's like they were, they, they never intended to build a full-frame sensor into this, but they found a way to do it from an engineering standpoint, and they've just run with it. And there's no question that they have accomplished that goal. Um, but I wonder if the lens design is complicated by the fact that the, uh, the mount is so small so that the rear elements have to be a little bit more exotic uh, in order to spread the light to all the corners without vignetting. But uh, that, that's not a, a fault of this particular camera, and it's one that Sony has clearly overcome. Um, but 
you know, you look at what uh, Canon, Nikon, uh, Panasonic, and of course, when we get into our next story, Sigma have introduced with their full frame cameras, uh, the lens mount is notably much larger. And uh, it's kind of fun to see how that is evolving and how they're kind of future proofing their investment and uh, hoping to possibly steal some market share away from Sony because they were the first one there. They hit the ground running and they are still the king in terms of sales numbers anyhow. Yeah, I agree. All right, well, let's get into that next story because we're talking about full-frame mirrorless cameras. And we know that Sigma was going to be coming out with a camera when the uh, uh, L-Mount Alliance was established and announced when Panasonic announced their S1 and S1R. Sigma also announced their involvement with that mount, saying that future cameras will be out and lenses as well. And uh, and now we're here. We uh, From DP Review, uh, I have an article that says, Sigma announces the ultra-compact FP L-mount camera, comma, teases full-frame Foveon sensor. Now, those two phrases are mutually exclusive. Because if you read the fine print on this camera, uh, it's actually really, really tiny. And it doesn't terribly look very ergonomic. And, uh, well, unless you, you know, add on the extra accoutrements, everything is kind of an add-on accessory to this camera, uh, which is an interesting model, and I want your opinion on. Uh, but we've got a, uh, a 20, 24.6 megapixel uh, BSI CMOS sensor. But, and this was a surprise to me, I believe this is Sigma's first camera introduced without a Foveon sensor. This has a color filter array in a Bayer pattern, um, just like everybody else in the full-frame mirrorless market right now. And I I know that the production of their uh, full-frame Foveon uh, sensor is probably complicated. Nobody's done anything like that before, and they just couldn't wait to get something out to market, is my assumption. And so here we are, their first uh, dipping their toes in the water, it looks kind of, I don't want to say first gen as a derogatory statement. Uh, it looks like they are putting this out there to test and see exactly what their audience is going to like for whatever the next generation becomes. Uh, but as it is right now, what are your thoughts on this new camera from Sigma? You know, it's interesting because when I was reading this article, three out of the four topics today, I immediately went, oh, I can't wait to talk about this. And this one I didn't know a lot about. And as I read the article, this one really actually lit me up, especially following that that Sony piece. So this is pocketable, right? Think about that for a minute. This is a very small, and when I say very small, the article is is uh, not in U.S. inches. So let me give the U.S. audience a conversion here. It's four and a half inches by 2.76 inches by 1.78 inches. That is really, really tiny. The height now, of the camera is the size of the mount, right? There's nothing above and below it. it yeah, it's... And, and in the comments for the article, I always love reading the comments. So if you go follow up on Photo Geek Weekly and you go to the links that he has in the blog post and you go look at the articles, read the comments. Over 700 f- comments on this article yeah. so far. And, 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 and people be having opinions. I'm just going to say. <laughs> so first of all, according to DP Review, who had a hands-on with this thing, the CMOS sensor is similar to what's in the A7 III and the Nikon Z6 or possibly even the Panasonic S1. It's contrast detect AF, but they say it can focus to minus five EV. That's pretty good. In a camera this small. Fascinating. I, uh, and actually, let me say this. The, the camera is the FP. Please start coming up with better naming conventions, people. <laughs> yeah, it's, Sigma has never named any of their cameras anything oh desirable. Oh, my God. And I looked it up in the article somewhere. There is a translation for it, which is Fortissimo 
uh, pianissimo, which stands for very loud and very soft. Okay, whatever. Sure. Uh, that n- nobody that buys this camera is going to know that or care about it. <laughs> there's a there's a couple of features in this thing though that blew my mind, and I didn't realize reading the article by the way until I read the comments. The screen is touchscreen. It does say that in the article, but it does not clarify whether or not it's a flip screen, and it is not. So what a lot of people say is it's more of a brick-style camera, which is uh, uh, popular in the video world. And the DP review clearly states this is a video-type camera. It's weather-sealed. It has HDMI. It has a microphone. It has USB 3.1. It has a remote mic and remote shutter port. And this was the weird one. It has flash sync. Now, the flash sync is actually a problem because it's an electronic shutter. Right. And syncing with flashes with an electronic shutter is tough. So they acknowledge that. And here's what Sigma says in relation to the the flash sync and rolling shutter. Quote, the sensor used has a very fast reading speed, which as an outtake, when you're dealing with an electronic shutter and you're dealing with rolling shutter, the, the problem is how fast that sensor can read what you're getting. Yep. So going back to the quote, it is able to shoot without major problems in most shooting scenes. That's going to be kind of cool. Yeah. But did you well, notice? However, if you want however, to use a flash on this, that's an extra add-on module because it does not have, in the efforts of simplicity and size probably, uh, a flash hot shoe on the camera itself. Right. Uh, this is something that will plug in where all the ports are on the side and it will have a hot shoe on that and it forwards the ports on to the outer edge of the camera again so that you don't lose any connectivity there. Um, but the same is true of the grip. The camera doesn't have a grip. And so if you want no, there is grip, no grip. It literally is a square box. It is a square box. And if you want the grip because you're using it as a, uh, as a stills photographer, that's another add-on accessory on the other side of the camera. So I, I kind of like the idea that it is modular in that sense, but it also kind of feels like you're nickel and diming people by making everything an add-on. And who knows what the prices of these accessories well, see, are going to be. I don't agree with that. When you've got a camera this small that's pocketable, it, you know, it's the art of compromise. You've got to give something up. Right. They still give you think about the normal, you know, I'm doing air quotes right now, the normal camera features. It also has IAF. It does HDR. It does 14 bit DNG. It does 18 frames a second. And then I laughed when I read, but only for 12 shots. (laughs) Right. So but for a camera like this, man, that's. I, I just feel like not okay including the hot shoe and looking at the top of the camera, there's easy room to put a hot shoe on the top. Uh, well, no, there's not. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why they don't want it there. If you look at the back of this body, which again, I didn't realize this until I started reading the comments and then went to the DP review article. That's a heat sink. Yeah. Well, and it looks almost like camera. there's an active fan possibly in there too. I have no there idea. But actually it- all the way around the back panel is a vented heat sink. And one of the complaints from DP Review was it does get warm because of that heat sink. So they may not want a hot shoe right above that heat sink, which is right dead center where the heat's going to go. Possibly. Uh, I'll give you a possibly there. Uh, but I, I still think that, you know, based on the size and position of the buttons, they could have been moved or reorganized in some way to clear off a little bit of extra space in the top plate. And... Uh, and well, you've got that. Uh, that there's uh, a lot of buttons too. By the way, I was surprised <laughs> they they really covered this thing with features. Uh, 
Oh, they did. They did. I, and I'm, I'm not questioning about that. It's just it feels weird to have, uh, you know, some of those uh, always expected items to be an add-on. But, you know, Hasselblad has done this before as well, and, and people in the medium format space uh, are familiar with this kind of concept. It's not new. And so here we are. One feature that really jumped out at me, Steve, um, was the uh, the ISO range, because it's by default an ISO range of 100 uh, up to 25,600, which is fairly standard, but it's expandable down to six ISO. And up to 102, 400. Yeah, the, the up one is always just software interpolation. I, I kind of get that. And I can even do that in post if I, was, uh, if I wanted to. But the down of down to ISO 6, uh, that is far lower than I think I've seen on modern cameras. Uh, yeah, I don't, I've never seen anything like that. This is, I think we both agree. Do you agree this is basically going to be popular for a video world? Yeah, I, I can't see many stills people uh, buying this up, and uh, and maybe that again makes sense to have something like a uh, a hot shoe as an optional item because video users aren't going to be using that. Uh, although, although there's a you usually can't take an interchangeable lens camera into a concert, but this one you might get away with, and you could have some killer lenses maybe on it, possibly because it's that small. But the video world on this thing, it didn't in the article it mentioned it did 4K at 24p. When you look at more of the specs, like DP Review had them all, it also does 25, it does 25p, it does 30p, it does 1080 at 120. And there's three things on the video that blew me away. It has cinema DNG. Mm -hmm. It actually has a waveform monitor. Well, and a lot of video cameras have that. If you have the uh, the firmware upgrade on the Lumix S1, you also get a waveform option Not within the there too. Uh, and and so you know w- w- when you see a waveform, you know it's a video camera. Uh, it yeah. is video centric for sure. Um, and on the back too, it has buttons dedicated to tone and color. You won't mm-hmm. see buttons like that on a stills camera, but that's very important for when you're recording video. Does your Panasonic also do timecode? Uh, my S1R does not. I don't know about the software update for the S1. Code. So that could be very useful It has useful a director in a preview setting. mode to see aspect ratios. And here's the killer one for video people. Video people prefer shutter angle over shutter speed. Mm-hmm. This has shutter angle control. There we go. Uh, this is then, uh, by that very uh, virtue, a video camera, um, almost exclusively, I would think. I, I can't imagine recommending this camera to anybody looking to shoot stills. It's just, it's not going to even but cross the market. But you want to try it. <laughs> Of course I'd want to try it. Uh, and I, I do a lot of video work, too. So, uh, I mean, when, when I see a camera with, uh, you know, a ton of video features, uh, I, I always kind of perk up and say, okay, well, how does that compare to what I'm shooting? And, um, and especially, you know, even external recorders will often give you an, a higher quality output. And I have no idea what an external recorder would be capable of producing uh, through a raw HDMI output on this camera. Uh, but if it can do cinema DNG in camera, maybe that's not even needed anymore. And it's 12-bit UHD in camera, I think. Yeah. So I don't think that you know is, is external. But really, the, when I saw this and I hadn't heard of it and I was comparing it with the Sony, I thought to myself, you know, there's going to be vloggers that are just walking down the street and just want a really quick – you could almost put this thing on a selfie stick. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I, I don't think that's its intended purpose, but you could. Yeah, I just, I, it, it's an intriguing device. I, th- I think Sigma is, is going in a direction that nobody saw coming. And, uh, and the 700 plus comments on uh, DP Review, and I'm sure elsewhere, uh, are pretty dissenting over what they've, what they've created here, by and large. But I, but I think that this is not 
a camera for everybody. This is a camera very specifically designed for a niche market, but I think that it's also something important to look forward uh, beyond this particular product. This is Sigma's first L-mount camera, and they're going to learn a lot from this, and they're going to roll that into future products that will be appealing to photographers and videographers alike. Uh, this is a huge learning experiment for Sigma, and, and, and as things move forward, I'm, I'm very curious to see what they'll come out with. Explain this to me. Maybe you know this one. A lot of the the comments reference that this is designed for a video cage. Yes. And evidently, you must not use video cages, so this camera is not for you. Explain a video cage. So a video cage is basically, um, well, I mean, it's labeled appropriately. It's a cage. The camera is mounted onto a platform. That platform usually uh, usually rises up on either side and on the base and possibly on the top. It will have many multiple uh, uh, tripod thread mounts in both of the common sizes, uh, plus some, uh, what is the thickness? It's uh, a quarter inch uh, or longer. I can't remember the the exact size. I think it's like a quarter inch diameter uh, pipe that you can affix extra attachments and doodads and gadgets to, like follow focus and and all of the things that a videographer might require, uh, including an external monitor, uh, okay. external microphone. It, it lets you plug in all of the stuff. You know, when you see a commercial and it says shot on iPhone, it's not somebody holding their iPhone there. It's inside of this massive cage of additional equipment to give you professional level quality. Uh, and that's what a, a video cage is. All right, makes sense. Yeah, uh, and it's in one of the pictures on this article if you were to scroll through them, second to last before they attach it to a drone, which is another uh, viable market for uh, for a camera like oh, this. Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Uh, and so then this cage has just all of the, the bells and whistles that a videographer uh, has dreams about. <laughs> yeah, no, think about how light that is. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty uh, amazing. So, uh, Sigma, thank you for coming out with this very innovative, tiny little camera that I'm sure will find an audience. I hope it's a big, big enough audience that you get your return on investment and, and push that forward to more L-mount uh, products, not just cameras, but I'm looking forward to seeing a lot of their lenses uh, as well. All right, let's uh, switch gears a little bit uh, and uh, jump into copyright, as we do occasionally here. Yes. Uh, so, uh, Petapixel, uh, I've got this article here. It says, Major Case Act, uh, copyright legislation uh, passed by the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee. And so the CASE Act, C-A-S-E, I'll read right from the article here before we start to have our opinions, um, is a major piece of legislation that would introduce a small claims court for copyright infringement cases. And it's been officially passed by the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee, clearing the way for a full vote on the Senate floor. Um, And uh, the unappealable court, uh, which is great, unappealable is important here. Uh, You can't can't question the ruling here. Yeah. Um, uh, would be staffed by three full-time copyright claims officers appointed officers. by the library. Let's uh, be clear on that one. We'll yeah, get to that, too. I, we're going to cover all yeah. of this. Oh, yeah. Uh, 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 appointed by the Librarian of Congress, uh, would be allowed to assign damages of up to $15,000 per infringed work and up to $30,000 total. Now... Uh, small claims court for copyright is not something new to the world. I know that uh, the UK has had this system in place for a while, and I actually have some copyright cases that I'm going to have to pursue using the small claims court uh, process over there. I just haven't had the time to do it yet. I tried to get in touch with a lawyer in the UK to take some of my cases on contingency, and uh, they responded with an agreement letter where they spelled my name wrong in every possible spot. Uh, And not even wrong the same way, 
they spelled it wrong in three different ways. And that was the best lawyer that I could find in the UK that would Nothing take things like on contingency. Nothing like instilling confidence. Exactly. So yeah, they, they didn't get my business. Um, but uh, if, if small claims court is an option where you can take care of things yourself without getting a lawyer involved, because let's face it, some smaller issues, they don't need, uh, you don't need a lawyer to, to deal with. Um, if it's a big case, sure, absolutely. You want a lawyer on your side. Uh, but sometimes for smaller cases, you just might not be able to get a lawyer worth their salt to even look at a case that's a couple of thousand dollars. I know you interviewed um, uh, Ed Greenberg uh, recently on, on an episode of your podcast, uh, and he, he basically said flat out, you know, some of these cases might be one, two, four thousand dollar cases. Ed doesn't take those cases. No. He works on a contingency basis, uh, and you have to pay a little bit up front, and then there's a percentage, I believe, although I'm sure it's different from one client to the next. And a lot of good lawyers will work on that same basis, but they're not going to work for pennies compared to what like a, a $50,000, $150,000 case might bring in. No, I totally agree. But there's, oh boy, my mind on this one. So let's be clear. First of all, this is only out of judiciary committee. It has to go to the full floor. And then it has to be passed by the House. So this is so, not law yet, right? But it's is, looking promising. It's looking promising that something will happen, but the odds of it looking anything like it does now are probably nil. Yeah, it's going to change. But that said, I, I so badly want people to stop using the term small claims. In the U.S., we have a small claims court. A small claims court is a different jurisdiction than federal court. Which copyright would be. Copyright is federal court. It must be in a federal court. This is the term that the PPA and other people keep throwing around is small claims because it makes that connection with people's brains that, oh, you know, this is like small claims. You can go do it yourself. It is not small claims. That is a different jurisdiction. This is a small claims tribunal. It is not even technically a court. Well, because it's, it's small... copyright claims officers, right? It's not a judge. Well, and again, they are not, do we even know if they're lawyers for that matter? We don't <laughs> because they are an appointed position. They're appointed by the Librarian of Congress. So let's be clear on a couple of things here. The Librarian of Congress is an appointed position, just like the head of the DOJ, just like the head of the EPA, and therefore, there is political issues, as we've seen in the U.S. now over a number of different federal departments that have appointed heads. You have the possibility that, and I'm just going to throw this out there. I'm not saying this would happen. I'm just saying worst case scenario. Imagine a political direction from the Librarian of Congress, an appointed person under a particular administration saying, I want you to favor the business over a creator. So a business steals your image, and yes, you, the small creator, decide, I want to go after them, but because of whatever political influence, it gets handled differently. So that's number one. Two, the article says, or three or four, whatever it is, the article says, quote, as of now, defending your copyrights means taking your case to a federal court. Okay, that part's true. A complicated and expensive proposition not necessarily. Possibly true, but not necessarily. And so what I did was I've interviewed uh, Jack and Ed a few times, uh, the guys Jack that run Resnicki the copyright and Ed Greenberg, zone. Yeah. yeah, Jack Greenberg and, and uh, Ed... Other Re way around. I'm sorry, Jack Resnicki and Ed Greenberg. Super nice guys. They do the book, The Copyright Zone, the website, The Copyright Zone, which you should visit. And I don't want to misquote him, so you can go watch it. It's uh, 
from a couple of years ago. It's the first one I did on copyright for photographers with them. And the, the segment I'm going to quote here starts at 1255 in the video. And what Ed said was, paraphrasing, more than 95% of copyright cases are settled before any papers are filed in court. And filing the court case is what costs the money. And a lot of, if it's worth enough money, a lot of those attorneys will do it on a fee, contingency fee. So no, it's not necessarily expensive. And he goes on to say more than 95, 99% end without a trial, which means less than a fraction of 1% get tried. Yeah. And so, and we don't know exactly what happens once those papers are filed and people settle it out of court because that's, uh, there that's could usually... be confidentiality agreements. Exactly. And, and typically I'm going to say in almost every case, there probably is some, uh, non-disclosure agreement clause within that. So we don't get to know, uh, the numbers and the final details there, but no, we do but know one thing, one thing Ed said though, which, which I think is interesting. This will, first of all, let me just say this will most likely be cheaper. Yes. But Ed actually did a proposal for this that apparently did make it to Congress, and he was pushing for this tribunal to be for cases less than $100,000. That's not what we ended up with. No, it's much less than that, unfortunately. This is a, a maximum of $30,000. But of, 15, across multiple infringements, right? So what, a single correct. infringement can only be 15000 Can only be fifteen with a maximum of thirty. So I have a scenario for you. Company, big company... Steals Don Komarechka's works. He steal, they steal six of your images, right? You want to take this to the small claims. You've got six images that may be worth $15,000 each. Doesn't matter. You're capped at 30. You're going to end up having to take that to a larger venue anyway. Exactly. And yeah. the company knows if they steal six of your images, ah, the most it's going to cost us is 30 grand most likely. Well, and, and so again, it's a hypothetical scenario, but I, I have to imagine that some company out there, and you know, companies are in the business of making money and, and yep. uh, uh, making their shareholders happy. If you had the option, you had to license 100 images, and the cost of licensing those images would be, you know, let's say uh, $1,000 a piece, right? So that's $100,000. Um, how many people would actually pursue you uh, if you were to steal their images? Well, most photographers don't know to search for their work or they might not find it uh, or they might be from a different country per se and they might not know that they can pursue it in the United States even if they are not a U.S. citizen. But even if they are well-educated, uh, let's assume that only three, maybe four people uh, will come in and pursue action against infringed work. And at that point, it makes financial sense to steal the work. I'm not I, I'm not saying that I would do that. I'm, in fact, I'm very, very much against it. But I can see from a dollar perspective, breaking the law could be cheaper. Oh, very much so. And again, we get back to something you said at the beginning that we really need to circle to. Again, we don't know if they're lawyers, and we don't even know if there'd be a requirement that they're lawyers, which should be in there. We don't know that they even understand copyright law. They're just appointees in the, in, under the Librarian of Congress. And it's not appealable. So going back to the real small claims court, as most of us think of it, there's a saying with small claims court that the person with the most paperwork wins. Yep. So if you go file 40 bucks to sue your neighbor because their tree fell onto your car 
and you take them to small claims court, usually the person with the most documentation and the most pictures win. Well, the whole point of this tribunal is that you could do this yourself. But if you are going against a company, they're going to have a lawyer draw up a ton of different paperwork and flood that tribunal with paperwork, which in many ways could be seen as giving them an advantage. It can. I mean, you're just playing game theory at that point because you see how it's worked out in the past in other, uh, you know, generalized uh, small claims proceedings. And so you just play by those same rules in terms of who who you're going to be presenting this information to. Uh, And lawyers are smart like that. And you have to play that same game. But you probably don't have the chops as an individual. Uh, I'm I'm not saying that in general you don't. I'm not pointing to anybody listening to this podcast and and saying that you're not good enough for it. But you're not you're probably not a lawyer. And you probably don't have the the expertise to draft up that massive amount of paperwork uh, to protect yourself, right? Right. And, and I do have to say, I, I like that PPA, and for that matter, NPPA, which is the National Press Photographers Association, Copyright Alliance, those people like this and they're pushing for it. And that's great. I find a number of things that were in the PPA video to be misleading at best. Yeah. Not wrong, but misleading. So they say that most report a value of infringement, most photographers report a value of their infringed works at less than $3,000. Then they say no one would file a federal suit to recover $1,000. And an attorney wouldn't take a case for less than $30,000. So they throw out these numbers as though that as though they're related. And no, really and, and in fact, I, I've had copyright settlements in the U.S. for much less than $30,000. Well, but now, you always that. hope for more, but, you know, in, in that scenario, uh, I mean, the lawyer gets well paid, I, I get paid, you know, and, and the infringer, uh, you know, it, are taken to justice to some degree. But, but here's my problem with that. They're saying they would have a $1,000 or $3,000 value. That means what you would have charged the person originally. That has no bearing on what you'd get in a lawsuit. Exactly. So to say no one's going to file a federal suit to recover $1,000, well, but if you didn't pay me the $1,000 and you remove my watermark and a bunch of other things, we're not talking $1,000 in that federal suit. Well, and again, we, uh, Steve, you and I are not lawyers. I mean, we've talked to no. them many times, but, uh, but I, I agree with you. I think your uh, assumptions there are correct that yeah, if you were to license an image for three grand and then somebody steals it, removes your watermark and does something that uh, you would have never even licensed had they asked... Right. Then, uh, then your damages your, would be your Canadian flag. Well, exactly. I don't like that flag. image because I don't want that image to be entangled by corporate or private interests. I use it in my own branding. It's on the signature of every email I send out and on the back of my business card, and yet it is constantly infringed. And you, if you were to license it, let's say it might be a thousand dollar fee, but because you don't, if somebody infringed it, we're not talking a thousand dollars. And public knowledge, a nonprofit does say one of the big things here is that there's no oversight. So written into this law, this tribunal isn't overseen by anybody but the Librarian of Congress. So there's no way to protect you know, it from, from abuse. I think, but, yeah, I, I, abuse is the right word. I think that this system, as it is currently played out, um, is ripe for abuse because there's appointees by somebody that is not a lawyer and uh, the, the, the say is final. It's it's like Judge Judy. That's the big one. Uh, the say is final. Exactly. And so you know, you know what you know what the fix would that for would be? Imagine if they just wrote a provision into this that said if that by doing the tribunal you do not give up your right to trial. So that if you went through this and they ruled against you, you still have the right to then escalate that to federal court. Steve, if this was publicly broadcast, 
Would you watch it? I think this would make for quite thrilling reality TV. This is People's Court. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but for Walker. copyright. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to a slightly related story. It's also on copyright. Don't want to spend too, too much time on this. Uh, but reported by F-Stoppers, a photographer loses battle against the Andy Warhol estate. The judge says Warhol surpassed copyright. Now, that's a, a loaded statement. Uh, how do you surpass copyright? But if we get into this, um, uh, I'll just read the opening uh, sentence here. A photographer uh, locked in a legal battle against the Andy Warhol estate has lost her legal battle. After only recently finding out that Warhol had, quote, repurposed her photo of the uh, the musician Prince back in 1984. I don't know. In 84, was he known as Prince or was he known as the symbol that we just referred to as the artist formerly known as Prince? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Prince. Uh, the photographer uh, tried to take action, but was denied after Warhol's work uh, were deemed to be in, quote, stark contrast to the original photograph. And so if we take a look um, at the images here, um, Judge John uh, G. Uh, Coeltel? Uh, I'm going to mispronounce that. But anyhow, uh, Judge yeah, John Coeltel, G. I don't know. Um, and if you take a look at these two images, you can clearly see uh, the influence from the original photographer's work, Lynn Goldsmith. And uh, so if you look at the borders of where the hair uh, matches, it's a really close match. And you can tell that the photo is the source material uh, for the work. And I guess the, uh, the part that makes it more transformative rather than derivative is the work around the eyes, which make it look like he's wearing some fairly heavy makeup around the eyes to really darken them down versus the original photograph, where that is not the case. And that is singled out within this work here. Um, it's interesting because, um, you know, <laughs> I, I would consider this, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a judge, but to be uh, quite derivative of the original, but um, lesser changes have passed through court reeling, uh, rulings in the past. Uh, what are your thoughts, Steve? Well, first of all, and again, you know, we can't say it enough. Neither one of us are lawyers. Neither one of us really know what we're talking about at all. Oh, but we're happy to have uh, opinions. I, I can make a good guacamole. That's pretty much about all I'm good for. But in looking at this picture, the Warhol version of it, yeah, I mean, the eyes are different, and they circled the eyes for some reason. But really, based on the hair, the mustache, the mouth, the jawline, the angle of the head, the earlobe, all of that, the eyebrows, the amount of forehead – this is really what you could get if you just took the original picture, stuck it on Instagram, and did a pre-done filter. Yeah. Right? It's, this is not that transformative to me. It's very clearly the same picture. I think they're giving Warhol the benefit of the doubt. And really, there's one part about this whole case that just was the, the part that kind of stuck in my craw and bothered me. It was the photographer's image. They don't dispute they use the photographer's image as the base that Warhol did. Yeah, that would be very difficult to argue against it. You know, everything yeah, they don't dispute that at image. all. And yet, the photographer, because the, the photographer has had complaints that they're just going after money. The photographer didn't start this. The Warhol Foundation preemptively sued the photographer, sued the photographer. first, preemptively. <laughs> To say, you can't sue us over this picture, it's transformative. They wanted that, you know, on paper and documented. So 
That kind of bugs me. And then she hit back two days later, it says in the article, with a countersuit. And Correct. as she should, absolutely. Um, but it, it feels like the real bully here is the, uh, the estate of Andy Warhol. Yeah, there's no question about it. I, I, it just, what they did here really bugs me, and I'm sure that the fact that it bugs me doesn't bother them at all. Yeah, and uh, there's not really much more we can talk about. It's, um, it's sad. Uh, take a look in the show notes at photo, uh, photogeekweekly.com if you want to see the comparison between those two photos. I would hate to be uh, Lynn Goldsmith in this scenario. I, I, I feel for her. I mean, somebody steals my work on a regular basis, and we just had Canada Day uh, pass by, and uh, that was July Happy 1st. Happy Canada Day. Thank you, and happy Independence Day to you too, sir. But, Thank you. Uh, my maple leaf flag image gets thrown around quite a bit on Canada Day. People advertising uh, sales on July 1st or advertising whether or not their business is open on that particular day. Uh, sometimes it's just you know shouting out a happy Canada Day, but it's, it's a business, and they're uh, guiding their audience towards their, their work. They're not crediting me. They're not getting permission from me. They're not licensing my work. Um, and in some ways, there's some small changes to it. You know, some text overlays or removing my watermark by various means. And, you know, I, I hate to say that I will spend about a day a month going through Google image search, uh, Bing images, the Yandex uh, Russian search engine, and using services like infringement.report to, to find people that steal my work. And, uh, you know, especially right around Canada today, that one particular image is, is quite often infringed on. And uh, I have made far more uh, from copyright infringements than I ever had selling it as a print. In fact, when I do uh, an art show, uh, I've got one coming up first weekend in August. I uh, typically bring all of my best pieces and a lot of my new stuff. And my maple leaf flag image, I would typically sell you know maybe six to ten copies of uh, per show. But now I barely ever sell one. Last year I didn't sell one. Partly because I think people see the image everywhere and they don't really associate it with it being mine anymore. And so my or name... difficult no, to get. Yeah, my, my name is not associated with it because it's so commonly stolen. I can't tell you how many uh, takedown notices I've sent for personal infringements on Facebook or how many uh, letters I've sent out via my lawyer to commercial infringements. And even still... Uh, it is still pervasively being stolen all the time, and it devalues the work associated with my name such that I don't profit on it anymore when I'm trying to sell a fine art print. So, I mean, it's just a real-world ramification that people see it and say, oh, yeah, I've seen that before. Great, but did you know it was mine? And, I mean, I might not even get to ask that question because people just will glance by and think in their own heads without me being able to to talk about the four months required to make that particular shot. Um, but I don't want to get too much about myself. Copyright uh, is something that every photographer should be aware of, and we've covered two stories here about how it might be changing, how it's judged, and really, uh, if there's a PSA here, go out right now. Uh, after you finish listening to this, if you're in your car or later on today, and look up exactly how to register your copyright with the U.S. Copyright Office. And Steve, well, and I'll I know give you this. I know I that actually, you've got a video that that I, I can direct people towards. I recorded a video that's a full walkthrough of how to register your your copyright. Uh, with the U.S. Copyright Office. All right. We will make sure that that is in the link, uh, uh, in the links, uh, in the show notes, along with these two copyright cases, because I want it to be very easy for people. And the video, and I watched it, is incredibly easy uh, for people to follow along at home and just follow step by step. And it doesn't cost you a lot of money. It's really well worth it. Okay. 
Final story. Uh, DP Review is reporting. Uh, it's a Kickstarter campaign that's currently active. Aurora Aperture launches the adapter mount format drop-in filters for mirrorless cameras. So if you were to have purchased uh, a Sony Alpha or a, a Canon EOS R uh, or a, a Lumix S1, S1R, or even that new Sigma uh, FP because it's using the L-mount, uh, any of these new mirrorless cameras... Now, Canon did something interesting on their own, and I thought that this was really clever when, uh, when they had the, uh, the EOS R announced. There was a version of their mount adapter to adapt the EF lenses to the new RF mount that would um, effectively have a drop-in filter. And so you it just, is literally a drop-in filter. It is literally a drop-in filter, but and and you can you know uh, purchase a variety of them from Canon, uh, and I believe you can even rotate them. Like if you could put a circular polarizing filter and things like that. And I saw that, and I was immediately envious. I mean, uh, I'm adapting Canon EF lenses to the L mount, and I would love to have that kind of functionality, but. There's no mount that currently has that. Uh, the NovoFlex adapter that I started with was just utter garbage, and I now have the Sigma MC21 mount that lets me, uh, you know, function a little bit higher, uh, you know, with uh, at least some rudimentary autofocus. But if I look at this, the, these filters, basically what they are is they sit inside the mount adapter, and they will give you either a neutral density filter or a graduated neutral density filter, or, and this is kind of fun, a whole series of light pollution reducing filters uh, based on the kind of lights that are around you and uh, and how you want to clean up a night sky image, more than I've ever seen from another manufacturer. Uh, so if you want to put these filters into your camera, you have one of those mount adapters, you can now, instead of buying a big, expensive, you know, my lenses are often 77 millimeter filter threads on the outside, some are even larger than that, um, those filters are expensive. It doesn't matter where in the system you put the filter, but if you're putting that filter in, uh, you know, closer to the sensor itself, the filter's smaller and less expensive. Uh, what do you think about this uh, sort of level of innovation here for everybody, not from a first-party manufacturer? Well, see, and that's the key. This is this is a third-party manufacturer making it for four different mounts. That's cool. Plus, three of the four mounts don't have something like this, so that's cool. But my okay, I'm going to say my problem with it, and it's not really a problem with it. I mean, it's kind of cool. You've got a UV filter, which they actually you know call sensor protection. You've got the ND filter, which is anywhere from 2 to 16 stops. You've got a grad ND. The power dusk is the light pollution one. Yeah. If you do astrophotography, I, I mean, that's the one that really struck me as interesting. These are all glass, by the way, shot B270 glass, except that last one. That power dusk is neodymium glass, which is interesting. Right. Well, and, and they label specifically in the, uh, in the rundown um, that uh, it's a neodymium-based glass with nano-anti-reflective coatings. I've never seen any glass like that before. Uh, and I'm assuming that some of those anti-reflective coatings will limit the wavelength of light. For example, one is, uh, is dropping the 572 nanometer wavelength down. That's high-pressure sodium. But if you have metal halide lamps, and there's a, dis a distinction right. between them, they'll have a version that cuts down the 585 nanometer light. And so they're getting really into the weeds with the specifics. They're, they're getting very specific on cutting down effectively what are street lights? Yeah, right. That type of a thing. Here's here's my problem though. We already had the EOS R filter adapter. There's there's more than one EOS R adapter, right? You can adapt your normal EF lenses. Yeah, or, you don't have to buy the one that has the drop-in filter. There's but they have there's one that has a drop-in filter, and the cool thing about the drop-in filter is you don't have to unscrew anything. 
you literally drop it in. Right. You don't have to dismount your lens. You don't have to do anything tricky. You don't have to worry about possibly getting your finger on your sensor. That's the thing. This one, you have to take the lens off. And you see them putting it literally inside and clipping it inside the ring. And all I can think is, are you going to do this with white gloves on? Because I guarantee you, you're going to put a thumbprint in the middle of that, that, that filter. Oh, yeah. Because if you look at the design of this, there's no real way for you to... I would not drop this in with the mount on the camera. Because if I drop it in incorrectly, it'll smuck It'll hit the, the sensor. It'll hit the sensor. There's so many... And why not go with a true drop-in style like what Canon did? Now, it's possible, again, this is Kickstarter. They say they're ready for development. Who knows? Maybe they'll change it up a little bit. But the key here is you mentioned that you have, you know, whatever size threads on your lenses. Well, if you have a 72 millimeter and you want to use it on a 58 millimeter, usually what you'll do is you'll buy one thread on filter and you'll buy a step up or step down ring. The beauty here is you're not putting it on the front of the lens. So now you can get a grad ND for a fisheye. Yeah. Because it's at the back. Because you can't put a filter on a fisheye lens, right? No. Uh, this well, is... I, I would actually like to see uh, an infrared filter within this system because I've got a, you know, cameras converted to full spectrum photography and I could easily throw a filter in the mount adapter uh, and then all of a sudden now that fisheye lens is an infrared fisheye lens, which I used to use on occasion and it was fun. And that really to me is some of the killer parts of what's coming up with mirrorless are these adapters that you're getting that are outside the box. The prices are fair on Kickstarter. A single filter is 44 bucks. You save a, like $2 if you go with two of them, but you can buy 10 of them. You can do a full kit for $372. That's bucks. The co- and the cost is important here because if I were to buy the Sigma MC21 adapter, it's about $250 to put an EF lens onto the L-mount. And so for $44... I can adapt that to now throw my um, uh, throw my extra filters in there. It's much less expensive than buying individual filters for the front of the lens, but at the same time, I I can't see myself using it from a convenience perspective. That's really it's the just, kicker. It's, and the reason is the way the filter goes in. Yeah. If they could convert it to like the the Canon, where it is on basically a slide rail that slides down. Boom. This is golden if they do that. Well, and if uh, if Sigma uh, were to come out with a mount adapter that has drop-in filters, well, they're going to make the drop-in filters. Maybe third-party uh, f- uh, filter manufacturers could do that as well, but you wouldn't need to be doing a whole Kickstarter campaign uh, to uh, you know, create buzz around that product. Anyway, it's interesting, uh, and I think that you're going to find a lot of people jumping into this mirrorless augmentation market because there is room for these products to exist, um, and especially if you are an astrophotographer and you want to cut down uh, the light pollution with a fisheye lens. I mean, it might make sense for you to have some of those tools at Actually, your disposal. Actually, that was the filter that just immediately jumped at me because yeah. I, I like shooting through my telescope, and that light pollution reduction filter, the, the, they call it Power Dusk. That's interesting, and I don't think Canon has that. Yeah, I, I don't think that they do either. So, uh, uh, and that's not to say that some uh, uh, enterprising third party could come in and make 
uh, drop-in filters for the Canon system. I'm sure they'd have to get around some patents that uh, I, I would be pretty well certain that Canon has well patented everything within that configuration uh, from a profitability standpoint. They want to be the ones to make those filters. Um, but, you know, you see what's coming out of China from manufacturers like Yongnuo and Newer and KNF Concepts and all of these people that are making accessories for cameras. I gotta say, at some point, we're gonna see those happen. And would I put my money into a product like this? Well, for $44, if I was shooting with a... I love my Canon 15mm f2.8 fisheye lens. Um, They came out with their L version fisheye at a later point, uh, and it was a zoom fisheye, but it was only f4. And that extra stop of light makes a big difference for astrophotography, and that's why I've still kept that lens. I've never been able to use a filter on it. Now I can. So maybe if I were to get uh, uh, very curious about astrophotography, which I haven't done much since my daughter was born and she's now three years old, um, that'll come again. And I'd love to use that lens with Does the $44 single filter include the adapter or is it just the glass filter? I'm pretty sure it includes the adapter because you only have... Because otherwise, why would I... Well, (laughs) exactly. Uh, I've got no use for it. And you would, uh, I guess you'd be able to choose exactly what mount. And you can buy uh, uh, up to, I think, uh, 10 different filters all at once or the full kit. 10 filters and the full kit is 372. Right. Uh, Now, what I need the full, I don't know how many people, they've got 25 backers at the full kit level uh, because that's what Kickstarter people will do is go all in. I know I just completed mine and I sold a lot of limited edition copies of my book and, and some prints to go along with them. And thanks to everybody that participated in that, it was just phenomenal beyond my wildest expectations. Uh, And so when I'm looking at this Kickstarter, as advantageous as it is, there's 26 days to go as we record this, and they have surpassed their goal. So this is going to be uh, to market. Their goal was just over $20,000 Canadian, 16,000 US, and now they are at around $26,000 US. And, uh, And so congratulations, guys. I mean, you've made a viable product and hopefully it's profitable and this keeps you around for for longer to do even more in the future because I like this idea. If we can just take this farther and create your own actual mount adapter, even if it doesn't have electrical contacts or anything else, a lot of my vintage lenses don't require that. Or when I'm shooting with that fisheye lens, I'm shooting with it wide open anyhow. I don't need to control the aperture. So uh, I look forward to seeing what you guys produce in the future. Yeah, interesting idea. All right, now into the picks of the week. Uh, Steve, do you have anything interesting for us this week? Yeah, I'm going kind of uh, kind of non-techy tech. So there's a website I go to daily. Everybody here probably knows about B&H Photo Video in New York. It's you know very popular among photographers. But a lot of people I talk to don't know about what's called the B&H Deal Zone. <laughs> and let me try and explain. Well, my the wallet B&H. knows about the deal zone. Oh my gosh! So the B and H deal zone is something where every single day, usually it's something between either one item or two items or three or four items, and and a lot of times it's three. Now and then it's four, sometimes less. They will take a particular item and put it on a very radical sale. I mean, I see on a regular basis anywhere from thirty to sixty percent off, and I'm talking products you actually want, right? These are not bizarre knockoffs, serious name brand products at a very, very low price. And all you got to do is go to B&H Photo. When you get there at the very top bar, it actually has a link for the deal zone. And it is, to me, just one of the most 
amazing things. Well, it really uh, is. Yeah, you spend money on things you didn't know you needed, but you spend very little money because sometimes I've seen things in there that are like 75% off of their regular price. And it could be because, uh, you know, there might have been a compatibility issue or the manufacturers just released a new product and they're clearing out old inventory uh, or... I mean, just who knows, uh, just trying to promote an upcoming product by getting an earlier version in people's hands. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in there. Like I've bought tripods. Um, I mean, I didn't need, I, I, I don't need more tripods. I already have like seven or eight tripods, but when one shows up on the P and H deal zone, I seriously consider it because if it's going to cost me, you know, 40 to $90 somewhere, anywhere in that two digit range, I tend to jump on that stuff. Yeah. And, for example, the lights that I use for my podcast, which are Draycast LED lights, I bought those on the deal zone, and they were about 50% off when I bought them. Right now, they've got a, a sharp monitor up there. Normally... I saw that what? earlier today. 24-inch, was it? Uh, it's a 24-inch ultra-sharp, Dell ultra-sharp, normally 275 for 200 bucks. Not a huge savings, but well, well worth it. You've got a... Uh, what else do they have up here? They have a wall charger for you know saving seventy bucks. It's only thirty dollars instead of a hundred. Really, yeah. it's normally ninety nine, and it's thirty dollars. There's you know, they have a Mi Photo Road Trip Air uh, travel tripod. Aluna. Oh, do you tripods? What? There's normally one hundred and twenty bucks. <laughs> it's only seventy bucks. That's fifty bucks off a hundred and twenty dollar item. And sometimes, I mean, you just look through the past deals, and you'll be really shocked at what they have. Everything from TV wall mounts to projectors to you know stands all kinds of stuff security camera systems you know software it's it's absolutely surprising to me uh what you can get through the deal zone so if you don't go there and now here's the deal they're only good for 24 hours yeah so when you, when 12 you get that email and, and New York subscribe time. to it so that it gets in your inbox so you don't miss it exactly uh, and uh, then when you see it jump on anything that you'd like because yeah, I mean, I don't want to people spend. Uh, to, I don't want to spend people's money frivolously. I mean, don't buy everything on the deal zone. But uh, you'd be surprised how many little items that I have in my studio that have come from there that are just like necessities of of, of work or you know consumable items or things like an extra tripod. Um, you mentioned your lights. Yeah, there's lots of good stuff there. I do nine o'clock Pacific time, so it's midnight New York time where they are. Nine o'clock Pacific time, religiously, I check B&H Deal Zone to see if there's anything. Um, <laughs> All right. That, so, yeah, if you've never gone there, try it out. You'll like it. That is a great uh, a great tip there, Steve. Uh, the B&H Deal Zone. Uh, spend your money. What, what's your uh, it also has to do with B&H, actually. And, and we didn't oh. plan this. We didn't. I didn't even put my pick of the week in the show notes that I would send you because uh, I was a little rushed putting them together. But I noticed when I was looking for uh, a workshop participant, um, the Meyer Optics Trio Plan 100. We've talked about uh, this lens and the company that produced it in the past. Um, the parent company, NetSE, went out of business. And uh, when they went out of business, uh, bankruptcy, uh, they had creditors. One of their creditors was OPC Optics, a business-to-business uh, lens manufacturer in Germany. And I'm assuming they made some or all of the glass elements inside the, the Meyer Optic uh, lenses. But NetSE owned lots, lots of other um, uh, brands as well, uh, you know, basically uh, a resurgence of the old vintage lens brands within a new package and modern lens mounts. But uh, I believe, and I don't have any confirmation on this, uh, but uh, through the bankruptcy proceedings, OPC Optics must have acquired the rights to the Meyer Optic brand from NetSE, as well as their inventory. 
So uh, right now on B&H, you can go in and you can type in TrioPlan 100. And NetSE, through Meyer Optic, the, the brand, was originally selling it for $1,600 US, which I paid because uh, I missed the Kickstarter campaign. And I thought, well, it's never going to get cheaper than that. It's now $648.95. And I'm assuming that this is uh, old inventory that has been acquired through those bankruptcy proceedings, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Uh, but it's $950 off of the original price. Um, and there That's is. That's crazy. It's crazy. And okay, if, if anybody doesn't know what this lens does, when it's shot wide open at f2.8, it has what's called soap bubble bokeh, where if you have uh, out of focus specular highlights in the background, um, they are brighter on the outside than they are on the inside. It's a really pleasing, magical kind of bokeh. Um, it's an optical flaw. The um, the the uh, lens was designed. I think Did the I optical formula was originally designed in 1916, uh, and so because of that, yeah, it's flawed. But it's beautiful within that flaw. And so uh, OPC Optics is not only just doing that; they are coming back with a new version of that. And so I just noticed this by chance on the BNH website, the Meyer Optic Gorlitz Trioplan 100 f 2.8 two lens and so this is for leica l and uh and fujifilm x so steve you dropped out for a second there i'm just continuing on uh without you but uh the second version of this lens that Meyer optic is uh now uh, opc uh part of that brand and uh they've re-engineered the lens they are coming out with of course the canon and the nikon lens mounts but fujifilm x leica l even the thread mount uh m42 micro four thirds pentax sony e everything you could imagine this new trio plan 100 version 2 is out for now it's going to have a a 15 blade aperture which is very similar to the previous one i i talked to them via an email and they basically said um, the lens that was designed previously was about 85% of the way there and now it's around 100% of, of as best as it could possibly be. They've changed a few things. They've changed the, um, the minimum focusing distance which I would always have to stack a whole bunch of extension tubes onto this lens to make it into a macro lens and it was a very good one uh, and some other stuff that I don't really know about yet because it might not necessarily be published but it says it's a revised triplet optical design so it's still got that triplet optics um, and the new price is $999 US. And I'm, uh, I'm guessing it's going to be available, uh, it says September 20th on the BNH website. So if you don't have one of these lenses and you want to get the older version, 650 bucks. You want to get the new one, it's $1,000 US. Um, I've used it even stopped down to like F16. It's a tack sharp lens and it's small. Um, it's very well constructed. And so we're looking forward to seeing what that's going to be. But the Meyer Optic Trio Plan 100, currently available with the old version uh, and the new one coming out in a couple of months. So I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, I don't blame you. And not to mention just the pricing alone. Well, compared to what it used to be, I think the big issue with um, uh, uh, Net SE is they priced the lens so expensive that very few people bought them after the Kickstarter campaign uh, wrapped up, and they never put them on sale. So they were just sitting on inventory uh, that they had manufactured after the Kickstarter campaign. And you know, we talked about this at the time when they were going through bankruptcy. Uh, some insider feedback was saying that basically they were. Uh, they were using the the new Kickstarter for new lenses to pay for the production of the previous ones, and that's never going to end well. Um, right. But 
OPC Optics, thank you so much for doing good to the Meyer Optic brand, bringing these lenses back. It's not just the 100. I also see they're revising the Trio Plan 50, possibly other lenses in the future. Uh, and if you like those vintage lenses, but you want them on a modern lens mount, I'm going to be buying one that has the Leica L mount on it and then probably selling my original Trio Plan. So if anybody wants one of them and you don't want to get one new and you're, you don't mind a couple of scuffs on the outer side of it, just let me know. I've, I'll, I'll have one for sale come September. And that's my favorite part of the show, man. It really is. Because, again, it's the reason I do the B&H deal zone thing at all. Sometimes you just go look and you're like, oh, I really want it, but you don't buy it. And other times there's just some really cool stuff out there that you, you may not know about even. But when you see it, it's like, yeah, I want that. I'm going to buy that. Yeah, and I don't mean for people to go out and spend hundreds of dollars. Like you said, the B&H deal zone will often get you into the double-digit expenses for something that could be very, very useful for you. Um, and then, of course, if you want to buy one of my expensive lenses, well, we'll have the links to that in the show notes as well at photogeekweekly.com. Steve, thank you so much again for being on this episode. Uh, you know, 77, and time flies. I can't remember the first episode I had you on. Um, but you've been on, I don't know, maybe a dozen times now, and I hope to have you on again in the future. I absolutely love it. For some reason, very unusual for me. I've got great speeds here, but for some reason, I've had a, a browser freeze and some internet issues, so I apologize about that. But well, hopefully it's all transparent to those listening to the uh, broadcast, because we had some level of foresight here to do local recordings for this episode. So uh, I'll get that from you as soon as we're done, and hopefully this will be out later today or tomorrow, as I like to get them out as quickly as possible. But Sounds um, good. in the meantime, it's time to get out and shoot. Shoot.